You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this Toronto Centre podcast. I'm Chin Hui Ng, Senior Program Director. We have just published a TC note entitled The Risk-Based Supervision of Liquidity. And I am very pleased to have the author here today, Paul Wright, to talk to us about it. Paul, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Chuen Hui. It's a pleasure, as always. Thank you, Paul. Paul is a longtime program leader with Toronto Centre and a veteran financial regulator and supervisor. Paul, this is the latest of many TC notes on risk-based supervision that you have authored for the Toronto Centre. Could you tell us why you have written this particular TC note? Uh, Yes, of course. Well, the idea is to provide supervisors with more extensive guidance than we've given in the past to help them in assessing liquidity as part of firms' financial soundness. Our previous guidance on this was, was okay as far as it went, but perhaps not as comprehensive as it should have been in this area. And it also seemed timely to do this, given that two very high-profile banking problems last year, those of Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank, both highlighted significant liquidity issues. So it seemed timely um, to produce this guidance. Some supervisory bodies, such as the Basel Committee and the IAIS, have published extensive guidance on liquidity. The Basel Committee has gone further in developing minimum numerical standards for banks. What does this TC note add to that work? So yes, you're right that the international standard-setting bodies have been very active in this area really ever since 2008. And the minimum standards that have been set, for example, by the Basel Committee, are extremely important. But as always, of course, the minimum standards are just that. They are minima, and they need to be seen as a starting point. And firms need to go much further than just meeting the standards, important though those are. And they need to ensure that their whole framework for liquidity management is sound and robust. And the note, the TC note, draws on broader guidance, certainly the standards established by the international bodies and some national supervisors, but we've also drawn on observed sound practice in setting out what the broader management of liquidity should look like. Just to clarify, Paul, are you proposing a change in the RBS framework as it applies to liquidity? Uh, No, no, not at all. The existing assessment framework, as you know, involves a number of steps in which supervisors start off by identifying significant activities, and then they assess the external and inherent risks embedded in those. And then they look at the strength of controls and management to arrive at an assessment of of what we call net risk. And then they consider the adequacy of financial resources, that's liquidity, capital and earnings, in the light of that assessment of net risk. And generally speaking, the higher the level of net risk, the stronger we expect financial resources to be. Now, we're not suggesting any change in that approach at all. 
But there are a couple of important points that come out of the note. The first is a reminder that liquidity has a sort of dual role in that it can be seen as an inherent risk as well as a financial buffer. And for some significant activities, liquidity can be quite an important source of risk and supervisors need to recognise that. And that's in addition to their making an assessment about the overall level of liquidity for the firm as a whole. And I think that idea of liquidity as an inherent risk has been taken up by some supervisors, but not by all. And it's probably something we had not spent or given sufficient attention to in our earlier work. So we've had the opportunity to rectify that. And then while we're not suggesting a change to the RBS framework, we do recognise that assessing the adequacy of liquidity can be quite demanding and complex, even in small and medium-sized firms. So we've provided more detailed guidance on how uh, supervisors might go about that, including examples of the kinds of questions that supervisors might put to boards and senior staff in connection with liquidity management. Well, thank you for that clarification, Paul. The note contains quite a lot of sector-specific detail on liquidity. Are the considerations and requirements fundamentally different as between different types of firms? Well, there are obviously important differences between the detailed drivers of liquidity across sectors. So, for example, the drivers of liquidity in banking are different from those in insurance and different, again, from those in fund management, uh, for example. And we do look at those in some detail. The paper's a relatively long one, actually, by the standards of TC notes. And one of the reasons for that is because we do look at these sectoral differences. But the big point which is that liquidity needs to be managed on a firm-wide and forward-looking basis as part of a comprehensive plan, applies equally to all sectors. So the detail differs to some degree, but the big point, which is that liquidity needs to be managed in this firm-wide basis, remains the same for everybody. How would you characterise the big ideas in this TC note? Well, there are several, actually. There are quite a few big ideas in it. And I suppose the basic one, the most basic one, is that any firm, even the smallest, needs to have a liquidity management plan. Somebody senior in the firm needs to have overall responsibility for that plan and oversight of how it operates. You don't make liquidity policy as you go along. It needs to be very carefully planned. The plan needs to understand the sources and uses of liquidity within the firm and the scope for liquidity problems to arise, bearing in mind that these can arise suddenly and unpredictably, and may be driven by issues in the wider sector or economy, rather than originating in the firm itself. And then, for this reason, stress testing is all important. There are almost more references than I can count in the note for the need for management and supervisors to consider how liquidity may behave in stressed as well as in normal circumstances. It's something we say over and over again. And the reason for that is because liquidity is notoriously hard to forecast. Liquidity conditions can change suddenly and unpredictably, and stress testing is an important part of preparing for that. And firms need to ask themselves, searching questions. So how might liquidity strains manifest themselves? How reliable are external sources such as market borrowing or 
committed facilities likely to prove in stressed conditions? And what is the right level of holdings of high quality liquid assets, sometimes referred to as HQLA, to allow the firm to weather these? And all these considerations may be encapsulated in a liquidity recovery plan. In other words, a plan about what to do should liquidity come under strain. And that in turn should form part of a firm's wider recovery plan, which we've written about elsewhere in other TC notes. And the management of liquidity you know, involves many risk-based decisions. So firms need to assess the risks to liquidity. They need to consider their tolerance for these. And then consider the benefits of mitigating measures, such as, for example, holding adequate high-quality liquid assets, HQLA. And that may involve them in some cost. So HQLA may not be the most remunerative form of assets that they could hold. And so, as in any risk-based decision, the costs of mitigating liquidity risks need to be weighed against the risks and the benefits. And all these things need to be considered carefully by senior management. These are high-level decisions that every firm needs to make, and they need to be understood and owned at the highest level in the firm. So, yes, the decisions need to be made by senior management, and liquidity decisions need to be understood and approved. By the board. You mentioned earlier that the note includes some questions that supervisors might put to senior managements and boards in this regard. Should we see that as a sort of checklist? Well, as we've emphasised in earlier TC notes and podcasts, uh, supervisors often need to adopt a particular approach when it comes to getting information from senior managements and boards. And this usually involves open-ended forms of questions. And what I mean by that are questions like, you know, tell me about liquidity, explain to me how you manage liquidity, and so on. Those are open-ended questions. And supervisors need to exercise judgment in choosing the right questions and, of course, in evaluating the answers to those questions. And the questions set out in the note are mostly of that open-ended kind. Now, to answer your question, uh, they definitely should not be regarded as a checklist, but illustrations of the types of questions that may be necessary to help supervisors form a judgment about the effectiveness of liquidity management. We don't want a checklist because firms or their advisors would quickly become aware of the questions and the answers that supervisors were looking for. You know, we really want to have a, a dialogue not a formulaic set of questions and answers. So no, not a checklist. Supervisors need to formulate their own questions on a case-by-case basis and decide on the best way to ask those. And of course, what would constitute an acceptable answer. And the note just aims to provide some helpful illustrations of those. Well, thank you very much, Paul. I'm here today with Paul Wright and you've been listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Thank you for joining us.